Guys, I really need to mention this sign that's behind me right here. Teach Me Anki is a company that I started that's out there to help medical students learn how to use Anki and integrate Anki into their studying. So if you're a student who wants to use uh, flashcards, spaced repetition, who wants to use Anki but wants to maximize your effectiveness, go to teachmeanki.com, sign up for one of the master classes, and you'll meet with an expert one-on-one -on -one who will get you back on track or teach you everything that you need to know using Anki. Okay, so we'll just go ahead and get started here. Hey, hey everyone, my name is Danny. I'm the uh, host of the Medical School Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Omar Bacall who is a resident physician at Mayo Clinic. And today we're going to talk about a lot of different things relevant for applying to residencies, specifically the ERAS application, how to make that stand out, and just how to maximize your ERAS application in general, as well as some mistakes to avoid. And also how to most effectively like make a program list for yourself. And Dr. Bacall is um, an inter international medical graduate. Is that right? So we're going to yep. talk about some things that are going to be specific if you're an IMG as well that are going to be really helpful for you. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for the invitation. I think you've done a great job with the podcast. And, you know, I do anticipate the podcast series is going to just keep growing as you add more and more content. And it was just my pleasure being here. Yeah, well, you know, I... I um, you know, I, I came across you because I came across your YouTube videos. And so if our listeners are, are, are looking for videos that are going to be super helpful for like uh, applying to residencies or um, especially if you're an IMG, you know, filling out the ERAS application, which is actually how I found you because I was in the process of filling out my ERAS, the experiences section, and um, went online, went on YouTube to look for some extra help and some tips. And I found just a great video on that. So if you guys are in that process, go ahead and check out what's your YouTube channel called? It's just my name. It's going to be Dr. Omar, O-M-A-R, and then my last name, Bakal, which is B-A-Q-A-L. Okay. So it's just as simple as that. So what's your, what's your story up until now as far as, you know, medical school, applying to residency, and now yeah. residency? Well, so I'm originally from India, Kashmir, um, the Indian side of Kashmir. Um, I was born in Saudi Arabia, and then I went back, moved back to India for seven years, then did my high school in Malaysia. And then went back to uh, Saudi Arabia for med school. And I think we had a pretty solid support from the med school with regards to you know, praying for the match, exams and research and so on. Um, so throughout med school, I was kind of involved in, uh, I was really, you know, I spent a lot of time within those circles of future planning, career guidance, and, you know, preparing for the residency. Uh, I was leading these programs that would help students get research and training in the uh, research and clinical training in the U.S., you know, just to help them get some research and clinical uh, experience. And we put together this residency preparatory course back in med school uh, where we brought our graduates who had matched at very good places in, um, in the U.S., like Mayo, Cleveland and so on. And they would come uh, and give this course, this two-day course, uh, to students, you know, planning to pursue this pathway, and that turned out to be a very beneficial experience. So, I realized that, uh, you know, having been involved in that sphere already, I truly just wanted to continue on that, even after I finished med school, you know, moved on to residency, and that's where the YouTube channel came in. I felt like. That was something I had been doing for a while and something I wanted, really wanted to continue doing, uh, you know, when it comes to mentorship and just really supporting people out there 
we went through struggles. Um, our seniors went through even bigger struggles, you know. And I feel like with every passing generation, we just want to try and make this whole process as easy as accessible for people out there. And I, I just felt like it was probably the most natural thing to do, you know, to share our experience and whatever we gained from our journey uh, to residency with everyone out there going through the process. Do you feel like there's anything uh, now looking back? And being an IMG and having gone through that whole process, is there anything that maybe you would have done a little bit differently or maybe something that you you glad you did it a certain way? You, you feel like uh, some some advice you want to pass on to someone who might be in the situation you were in? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, and I think I would have several different answers when it comes to that. The first thing is I am glad I stuck in, yeah. you know, um, Last year was difficult. Uh, you know, we came to a point where I was not sure if I'm going to apply to the match. Um, everything looked very uncertain. I was in Saudi Arabia. Flights were canceled. Electives were canceled. So I wasn't sure if I was going to get those, you know, U.S. electives or even the letters of recommendation from the U.S. to be able to apply to the match. And but I was like, no, I'm still going to try and apply to the match this year. Yeah. You know, whatever happens. And then you know, this ray of light came. My Mayo elective that was canceled before, they re-offered it to me. I was able to go through this. Wow. I had only one elective on my application, got the letters I needed from this one elective, and I applied for the match. That's one thing. So I think just not losing hope, and I'm glad I did that. You know, just kind of kept fighting, kept pushing. Um, it's a very taxing, very difficult journey, and quite often you will feel, um, you know, kind of on your knees and defeated and not sure whether you should just keep going but i would say keep go uh, keep going you know yeah um so that's one of the things i would have to say secondly i am glad i networked um i cannot emphasize that enough how, you know how, do you, how did you do that exactly because this is one thing where like people are, people say when you know getting a residency depends a lot on who you know and then i'm like thinking to myself like mm-hmm. i don't know any anyone you know and i think a lot of students are like that like how yeah. do you get to know people along the way and make connections what do you feel like is the are the best ways to do that i think there are a few ways to do that um and you just have to go all out when you're trying to network with people yeah. you know the, you, you're gonna find people first of all your seniors from med school they must have matched at different places reach out to them for advice and they first of all can put in a word for you or they can connect you with people who might uh, be truly instrumental when it comes to you know you getting interviews and so on Second thing is LinkedIn. I made uh, as much use of LinkedIn as possible. Um, I think I'm probably more active on LinkedIn than I am on like Facebook or Instagram. Um, Wow. That networking, I think, proved to be pretty key to me. You know, I can say that I did get an interview or two from LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, just networking, Um, just reaching out to different um, faculty of programs or like program directors or what did that usually look? Because I don't think I even have a LinkedIn account. Right. So I would say you have to get yeah. on it, you know, as soon yeah. as possible. And it's not usually just the program directors. You can, you can connect with uh, residents, with fellows. Mm-hmm. And this extends really beyond residency. You know, you're going to be reaching out to people who might potentially get you research uh, projects you could work on and get publications. Now, people interested in fellowships and so on, that can prove to be very useful. And again, I've had several different research projects I've worked on. That I got through my LinkedIn networking. So LinkedIn can be pretty useful, you know. Have you had people. have you had much with luck with Twitter as well? I know a lot of people use Twitter to network in medical school. Have you had any luck with that? Or have you, have you did you use that in the process? 
It's a good question. You know, there's a pretty robust medical community on yeah. Twitter. I personally haven't been that active. You know, the the pattern of uh, activity I've seen on Twitter from the medical community is really just like sharing research findings, the re, you know, recent research studies and so on. Yeah. Uh, I most recently did uh, get involved in a research project through Twitter. Hmm. I just direct messaged a certain faculty that was, has been very active in research, simply reached out to them, told them I'm interested, and you know, I was able to get involved in research. But when it comes to residency, no, I did not really you know, use Twitter uh, during residency, particularly because I just wasn't very active. I didn't have a yeah. big um, kind of reach and audience. I, so. I wish I would have used LinkedIn and Twitter when I was looking for research opportunities because what mm-hmm. I did is sort of just like, look for opportunities through my school, but I noticed there wasn't a whole lot going on and I was just sort of waiting for something to open up. And eventually I just thought, well, I'm just going to start my own thing. And that's what I ended up, which actually ended up working out. You know, I, I got, um, I got quite a bit of research experience and got some publications as well. Um, but I didn't even think about reaching out to people on Twitter and LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and stuff. So I think that would have been helpful for sure. What, um, What about what about if if you're an an IMG and you're trying to get experiences in the US uh clinical experiences because I know these are highly valuable especially if you want to end up you know in a residency in the US uh what are some things that you can do in that situation to to get those experiences and then to maximize those experiences it's a pretty good question, Danny. Um, I think overall it's been pretty difficult for students, whether U.S. or non-U.S. Yeah. Um, students, uh, with regards to you know doing rotations, away rotations, and cancellation suspensions left and right. Um, things are kind of getting back on track, but it still is a very difficult situation overall. I can tell you, you know, really, potentially the biggest uh, factor in my case, um, you know, when it comes to matching at Mayo, was my clinical rotation that I did at Mayo. Yeah, uh, that had several benefits that it uh, gave me. First is I was able to get those much needed letters of recommendation that I needed. Secondly, I was able to work with the residents, the fellows that I am very certain gave direct feedback to the program about who I was as a person. Um, I was also able to meet the uh, program leadership and kind of have, uh, you could think of it like an interview before the actual yeah. interview, you get me? Uh, so I think the benefits of doing rotations in places uh, are far reaching, you know, especially when it comes to the top programs, they are more likely to, you know, consider students who they've had experience with before. Sure. That includes students they might have rotated through them before. And when you have faculty putting in a word or putting in a good word and a recommendation for certain applicants, you know, you can just imagine how that um, boosts their application. So that's one thing. Now, how you can make most of U.S. Uh, clinical experience? First of all, just do your best. Yeah. You know, come out with guns blazing. You know, you're here to get the job done. You're here to impress. So come prepared if you can. Do your best. I came in. I, I wouldn't say I had any extraordinary clinical knowledge or skills. I think it was just really being a good person, being a nice person, friendly with everyone offering help where I can, 
using every opportunity to learn, yeah. you know, just proactively learning, asking questions, answering questions. A lot of my answers were probably wrong, but I feel like a lot of my attendings really appreciated, um, you know, my confidence in just being engaged in the discussion that was happening, trying to know my patients as well as possible. I think that was a big factor as well, because when you're doing rotations at a certain place um, as a final year med student, your comparison is an intern, a uh, first year resident. So they would want to see whether you are able to execute the responsibilities of a first year resident or not. And how do you match? Are you close at least? If you're close, pretty good, good enough. Yeah. For you to get those letters of recommendation so again just do your best uh, be nice be proactive in your learning and just you know remain engaged how, how did you come up with uh, how did you decide which programs to apply to because like with internal medicine mm -hmm. <clears throat> i imagine there's hundreds of programs in the u.s i don't know exactly yep. how many um but how did you narrow it down especially being um a student who's an, who's an IMG. Um, mm -hmm. how did you narrow down and how did you, how did you, um, find the programs that you, you felt like were going to be most suitable for you and how do you recommend other students do that? I think that's a good question, Danny. And I have to mention, you may not know, but there is a pretty dry, you know, major difference in the number of programs that us med students apply to and the number of programs that not IMGs apply to. Give you an idea you know i've heard numbers like 20 30 40 programs for u.s students imgs applied to 200 250 wow programs. Yeah. yeah yeah that's a lot of programs <laughs> that is the reality yep. that is the reality of you know what it's like to apply as an img to the match and out of those 200 you probably get like 10 5 to 10 ish interview yeah so it's a very different dynamic um and that kind of explains what my approach was. I applied 210 programs because that is just, you know, the expected from, uh, for IMGs. Yeah. Um, but obviously there were um, programs that I had to exclude, which I just did not see myself in. I was more focused on, you know, fellowship in cardiology. So that's one of the factors that kind of shaped my um, application. Um, but again, as an IMG, you don't always enjoy the luxury of uh, being very focused with the places you apply to. My advice usually for IMGs is applying broadly initially, yeah. you know, have a broad um, list of programs you apply to. And when it comes uh, to ranking your programs for your rank list, then you can kind of take uh, other factors into consideration. In my case, you know, I kind of had to sit down with my wife and just really think about the interviews I had done, what my impression was from these interviews. Your interviews are going to give you a, a gut feeling of, you know, a, about the program. You you will know yeah. if the program feels right or not and whether you see yourself fit in that program or not. The other factor is really the location. You know, is there a certain state or a city um, that you, you would prefer to be in? Do you have family nearby somewhere? So these are the factors, you know, just we have to keep in mind that uh, you'll be training in the program, but you'll also be living in that city and that state for the next three years, at least if it's internal medicine. So I think all these factors put together, you know, uh, your preference for future training, your preference for residency training. Do you want to be more primary care focused or do you want to have you know more specialized um, experience with your training and then fellowships? 
um, your partner's preference and you guys together kind of coming up with what's most important for you guys in your in your you know in the, in the context of your circumstances. Yeah. So all these things put together will give you a good idea of what programs you would prefer. Most. Looking looking back because you um, did you interview last year last cycle. So it, so it was yeah, all it was all the inter- interviews were on Zoom, right? Were were virtual interviews. Yeah. Any advice for people interviewing this season since this is like a new thing. You know, virtual interviews is is pretty new and obviously it's not like it used to be where we can go and fly out and see mm-hmm. the places and see the things. Looking back, do you have any advice for students in this situation as far as knowing i don't know what to ask um, what to do during their interviews or how to set up their interviews anything anything like that come to mind good question i'll start off by saying that the big pro of the interviews being virtual is you save a ton of money yeah you know you don't have to pay for flights you don't have to pay for hotels accommodation so i think that was a big plus initially you know, there was that period of adjusting. This was something entirely different, not only for the applicants, but also for the program. Yeah. You know, everyone was adjusting to this app, totally new uh, way of interviewing, you know, and sometimes you'd run into logistical issues and technical problems and whatnot. But overall, overall, I think the experience was pretty smooth and much better than what I would have expected initially. Yeah. Um, at no point did I feel like I was limited um you know, with how much I was able to express myself to the programs and express my interest and to be able to share my experiences with them. Um, obviously, you know, you're not able to go in person and see the places for yourself. Um, that's the drawback of uh, virtual interviews. But overall, my advice would be to be yourself, be nice and be natural. Yeah. Um, I think that served me best. I came to realize, you know, as we went along the interview trail that a lot of it is just so conversational you know programs are not really trying to put you on the spot and trying to interrogate you it's really just for them to get to know you better as a person i was i was going to ask uh, how how often you came across uh questions like situational questions like tell me about a time when you know x y and z mm-hmm. sort of thing um have you did you have yeah, any well, of those like sort of like trick questions or put you on the spot sort of questions like that mm-hmm. uh you know, there are some questions you should expect to be asked quite yeah. commonly. First one being just tell us about yourself. Yeah. It's one of the m- most common questions you get asked on on the interviews. Second would be fellowship interests or like future mm. planning. What's your plan for the future? Third, research. Uh, sometimes they may pick, you know, one of your publications or research experiences and tell you to just elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about situational or, you know, scenario-based questions, I did get asked those questions um, I wouldn't say very frequently but I'd say maybe about half of my interviews uh, I got asked uh, you know such questions in quite often there is no one right answer you know it's really just for them to see how you think through a certain scenario yeah. whether you know if there's a scenario where you're in a difficult situation they would want to hear that uh, you are going to consult your senior you're going to go sure. talk to your senior yeah. first you know stuff like that um, there was only one interview that I had that asked me medical questions, mm. like, okay, you have a patient coming in with back pain, so what kind of things are you thinking about? Yeah, you know, that is very unusual. But uh, you know, situational questions might come um, by commonly, 
but nothing to stress over nor is there anything to prepare for like they are only meant to show them how you think and you think how you think you know you can't really try to script how you think you just have to be in that situation and just let them know naturally what you would do in that situation yeah. keeping in mind you know the qualities they would want you to have they would want you to be aware of the hierarchy they would want you to be safe they would want you to be timely friendly considerate of your colleagues and stuff like that so as long as your responses reflect those qualities you should be fine um i want to touch a little bit on eras applications um mostly because this was me you know in, in this in this position of applying to residencies and filling out the eras and coming across that awesome video, which again, all the listeners should check out if you're in the, if you're in the process of filling out the ERAS, I know in the next uh, few days is when the ERAS is going to open up to program directors, directors. So we're all sort of like finishing up, um, um, finishing up our applications right now. What are some of like the biggest mistakes you think students make with ERAS applications and how, and how would you correct those? Or like, uh, what tips would you mm -hmm. give for students? Mm -hmm. It's a good question, and I do, you know, I almost review several uh, applications every day, especially over the past few weeks with everyone working on their applications. Um, and I would first of all advise people to look at their ERS application from the perspective of program director. Yeah. These are programs that receive six to 7,000 applications every season. That, that was the case last year at least. Um, so make it as easy for them as possible to go through your experiences and this make sure that they're organized, easy to read, and your applications are just not overloaded with experiences. At some point, you need to prioritize what experiences you're you want to mention and which experiences you would want to exclude because they don't add much value to your application. Because here's what happens when you add too many experiences to your application. There is a fear that that will shift the focus away from your more important experiences to your less important experiences. Mm -hmm. And if the reader or your interviewer uh, was to pick on your application and you know pick a certain experience for you to talk about, you would want to hope that they pick on something you're very passionate about, not something you did like uh, pretty briefly, not you don't you know weren't much involved in that. So for that reason, try to prioritize what you want to mention in your application. Don't mention too many things. Uh, truly just kind of critique every single experience and see how it adds to your, to your application. What benefit does it uh, give to you in the context of you applying to residency and in the context of the qualities the programs are looking for in you? That's one thing. Secondly, just keep it organized. I usually tell people to uh, use a numbered list for the descriptions mm -hmm. because I just feel that's makes it more readable, more organized instead of paragraphs. That's my personal preference. And every program director is a human with their preferences. You know, yeah. some might prefer paragraphs, some might prefer numbered lists. My preference and my recommendation usually is a numbered list because to me, it's easy to read. Right. And then um, as far as like, uh, um, like where's the line? Like, like if I'm a student and maybe a, maybe a student who doesn't have a lot of experiences, you know, maybe they have like, um, uh, one or two major volunteer experiences, but then they have a bunch of little ones that were sort of like day long experiences, right? Like, is it better mm -hmm. to put, um, all, sort of like fill your application with, with, um, you know, X number of experiences or to have just a couple 
strong ones that you can talk about? Like, at what point do you decide, oh, I'm just going to put, you know, these two strong ones as opposed to putting the two strong experiences and adding the smaller ones? Does that make sense? That might be sort of a confusing question to ask. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, I think my recommendation would be that quality over quantity yeah. is probably key. You know, it's, I think, of not much benefit if you have 10 volunteering experiences which are absolutely irrelevant do not reflect at all um, yeah. your qualities or the qualities that the programs would want you to have like leadership clinical skills and knowledge or you know meaningful uh, involvements like community service and so on if if it's something absolutely irrelevant even if you mentioned 10 i don't think it compensates for one strong or one or two strong meaningful and impactful experiences so i would say quality over quantity um, and i think med students should Keep that in mind when they try to when they you know trying to get involved in different activities. They do need to think how it adds to their application. I think that was my um, my approach when I was in med school. You know, I had pretty much no uh, short term volunteering on my application. Almost everything I put in there were year long, two year long commitments. Um, you know, roles that I had in student committees uh, in the quality patient safety program at med school. I was also a BLS course instructor at my med school. Yeah. So whenever I tried getting engaged in, you know, activities, I did introspect and think like, how does that benefit my application? And going, you know, down the line, when I mentioned this in my application, what does it reflect about me? So people need to understand that and, you know, prioritize accordingly what they want to mention in the application. and what. Do you meet with medical students? I mean, as part of like mentoring or uh, anything like that? So um, at Mayo, um, uh, you know, there have been a few IMGs who are research um, associates, research trainees yeah. right now at Mayo. And I actually did get to meet them. I sat down with them and just had a discussion about the challenges they were facing and, you know, what I could do to kind of support them through this journey. In addition to that, I am involved in mentoring a few applicants long term. You know, it's like a commitment on, from both sides. We meet either virtually, uh, actually virtually because in, they're in different parts of the country uh, and in fact, different parts of the world. Uh, we either have a phone call or a video call monthly. Uh, to kind of catch up on the progress with their application and what kind of challenges they're facing. So these past few weeks have just been a process of, you know, just reviewing CVs, reviewing personal statements, yeah. see how they can make it better, how they can polish those documents further. And uh, that's been a very fruitful experience and a very um, enjoyable experience for me, you know, because I noticed about mentorship is that you can have a more meaningful impact when you are mentoring someone more long-term, right. you know, people always ask for advice. I review, you know, application CVs, a one-time thing, and you know, they are on the way. But when you're able to mentor people over time, you, it's pretty satisfying to see the progress they slowly yeah. make as they work through each obstacle, each hurdle. And, you know, I wouldn't um, do anything different. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. And our listeners should definitely go and visit uh, uh, our Dr. Omar Bacall's YouTube channel and check out his videos on the uh, application process and ERAS and personal statement and all a bunch of great videos. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. You Good luck with the match. And I'm sure you'll thanks. be great. Thanks.